You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. One of the things that, that, that really attracted me about the job in Ireland was when I read the spec, it was very clear to me that the Irish government had got it and they were looking for a CIO who could really be the bridge between the business and wants of the, the, the government and then the delivery side, the, the technologists themselves. And that's the role that I always saw myself as being most comfortable in. So I always felt I was somebody who was naturally from that position, if you like. You know, my own background was humanities. Um, my master's degree was about transformation and, and, and occupational psychology and so on. So it was all of those things where I felt was a CIO should be doing. And I also felt that 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 was where my skill set was anyway. And I was a natural fit for that type of CIO. So um, I remember when a friend contacted me to tell me that that the job was was had been advertised. He said to me, you know, I know that role very well and you're a perfect fit for it. And it's a perfect fit for you. So I've been here six years. He must have been right. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And I've got a really special show for you today as we cross the Atlantic to speak to the Chief Information Officer for the Federal Government of Ireland, Barry Lowry. As all of you listening already know, digital transformation is crucial for governments across the world, especially in today's day and age. What you may not know is how much this shift to digital can impact the trust of citizens in their government. And the best way to drive trust is to reimagine the citizen experience, which has taken center stage in government right now. Respecting customer privacy shows that you treat your citizens as valuable assets. You can use the digitization to empower citizens to make decisions using the data you collect. This will go a long way in helping them improve their civic trust and participation. And the Irish government has been focused on reimagining this customer experience for their citizens, among other things. And today we're going to speak about that as well as what they're looking to do in the future and much more. And I'm really eager to get right into this conversation. So let's do that. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Brian. And uh, thank you for inviting me. It, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you today. I'm so grateful to have you on here. And I'm really interested to get your perspective on a lot of the talk topics that we live and breathe every day. But before we do that, I wanted to start with something you said in a recent interview because it really stuck out to me. You said you considered yourself one of the luckiest people alive. Why, why do you feel that way? Um, because I think uh, you're a very fortunate person if you're doing a job that you love. And uh, I fell into um, a career in technology really by accident. Um, when I was doing my exams many years ago, um, I thought I was going to be either a teacher or a journalist. And... Uh, I went into the civil service as a summer job um, and my exam results came out and I was accepted by Queen's University and University of Ulster. But I got quite taken with the idea of earning money and, and not studying. And so I decided I would take a year out. And um, during that period, uh, I had a mentor. I was working in a pensions branch. So literally preparing pensions for, for retiring people. And uh, my mentor encouraged me to apply to become a trainee assistant programmer with the Northern Ireland Civil Service. And I did the exams and the interviews and uh, I, I started this job, not really knowing whether I had any desire whatsoever to work in technology, but I, I met some great people and uh, Notably, uh, my first boss, a lady called Jenny Johnson, who became one of the most influential mentors in my life. And she actually gave me a love of 
not just the technology, but actually the opportunity to make a difference. Um, I was very interested in in, in the podcast with uh, Natalie, um, the recent one where she was talking about you know the user experience and orchestrating the user experience. Well, through Jenny, I was getting into that uh, at a very young age, and I, and I found out that's what I really loved. I loved the idea of writing programs and designing things and so on, but what I really loved was starting with the users, working out with them what they were doing, what they wanted, and developing something that hopefully went beyond uh, what they'd asked me for and seeing the satisfaction of that. So that really drove me throughout my whole career. And I've just been very lucky since. I've always ended up in roles that I've really enjoyed and I've learned things out of and so on. So that's why I feel incredibly lucky. You're speaking my language because that's kind of what I'm living and breathing every day is the human-centered design aspect of deploying these these citizen services and really putting the citizen at the center of kind of what their needs and wants are and and what's the process that they're going through as they're getting these services from the government. So um, it's it's very, very interesting and very cool that you have a passion for that. And that's kind of what brought you in. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. And, you know, I, I I've said many times joking to people, but it's actually true. Every public servant I would put them into a benefits office or or a pensions branch almost as a a form of national service, if you like, because what I learned by dealing with people who, you know, ultimately are, are, are some of the most vulnerable in society is that decisions that governments take and, and, and how you work in your own job really does impact lives and lives where they need you to really help them. And so, you know, right from the age of, you know, 18 years of age, I was, I was starting to realize that, you know, you can really make a difference to people with the work that you do. And so, you know, in a position now where I'm privileged to have influence and, and, and deal with very senior politicians and so on, that, that privilege has never left me. And, and, and all that's happened is I've got more responsibility and, and more possibilities to make a difference. And so that's really what drives me on in my career. So yeah, when I was, I wanted to ask you what what's kept you in public service. You you talked a little bit about kind of how you got into it, um, even if it's sort of by happenstance. But but what has kept you in in this public servant role? Um, I guess the short answer is that at times I've I've worked with with people and, and companies in the private sector, and they've offered me opportunities. But it always seemed to be that if I if I came close to accepting one of those opportunities an opportunity would appear in the public service uh, and that excited me even more. So I, I, I stayed and actually, you know, one of the great things about public service, well, there, there's several great things about it, but what one, one is the diversity of the work. You can, you can just use so many skills and learn so many new skills. But the other one is that vocational aspect of it where you can really make a difference, you know, and, even, you know, in OGCIO, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the head of the Office of Government Chief Information Officer, obviously. But, you know, we were very much involved in the digital COVID certificate. We designed the system that enabled people to take these little certificates down, load them onto their phone and travel and go into restaurants and coffee shops again. And, of course, you get to experience that. You get to be in the queue behind people who are able to, eat out again and things like that because they've got this proof that they've been vaccinated or recovered or had a negative test. And when you actually see that happening, it's hugely motivating. And 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 that's always been, you know, my thing. I was very fortunate. I was involved in um, the, the first computerized driving licensing system in Northern Ireland, the first computerized planning application system. So it's actually meeting people locally who were who were using my systems and would certainly give you their opinion, good, bad or indifferent, you know, but but there's a there's a real buzz with that, you know. And I guess when I was doing the role that I did in, in Northern Ireland, one of the things that I was able to influence um with the minister at the time was I was doing a lot of youth work because I'm a great believer that you can't complain about young people if you're not willing to do anything about it. So I got involved in setting up a youth club and working with kids and so on. But an extension of that was my belief that 
what we should be trying to do is is give kids hope. You know, and one of the greatest ways of giving them hope is giving them opportunities in this wonderful industry we both work in. So you touched on you touched on COVID and some of the the work you did in response to that. I'm really interested to know what did the pandemic look like for you and your organization? Being isolated, obviously on on an island, has its own has its own difficulties and challenges unto itself. But what were some of the the major challenges that that you faced and how did you look to overcome them in support of your organization so the immediate one was to enable our organization to flip from one that was uh, 90% in the office and 10% working remotely to one that was 90% working remotely because of the the requirements of the lockdown restrictions and so we're a fairly modern organization technology-wise anyway. So we had a, a large proportion of, of people who would have had laptops, but some who didn't. So we enabled basically the workforce to work from home. So that was the number one priority. Then we started talking about um, how, can, how can technology and innovation actually help us with this? And like many countries, we headed down the direction of a contact tracing app. And I'm sure most of the listeners know what a contact tracing app is. But for those who don't, um, if someone got COVID, was diagnosed with COVID or felt that they had COVID, they were, they were highly symptomatic, uh, they would phone the um, service center in our health authority and uh, they would ask them, could they remember who they might have been in contact with so as they could tell them to isolate. But of course, you only knew the people uh, names and details that you actually knew. So if you've been in public transport or something like that, uh, you wouldn't be able to identify those people. But what the contact tracing app did was if if two people both had that app on their phone, it would uh, anonymously identify a person who would have been in close contact with you. And by uploading your keys, that person could be contacted and, and told what actions they needed to take. So... Um, at that time, there were a couple of cases emerging. There was some cases where they seemed to be having some success with it. Um, there were some cases where they were very publicly not having success at all. But we believed that we could develop one. And, and actually, one of the things about Ireland is that although we're a very small country, we've got very, very strong relations uh, with um, many large companies where we're a big center of, of multinational activity. And so we were able to work with quite senior people in Apple and Google, and we were able to develop something that clearly was going to work. Which is, I think, what we saw a lot of governments try and do over the course of the pandemic, right, is really lean into the private sector partnerships that they had established to support in a agile fashion because things were moving so quickly. We need to take a quick break, guys, and we'll be right back with more from Barry Lowry, the CIO for the Government of Ireland. Don't go away. Your citizens at the center of government services with Genesis, the global provider of modern customer and employee experience solutions. With Genesis technology, government agencies at all levels deliver citizen-centric support that ensures constituents are remembered, heard, and understood every time they connect with you. Deliver on the promise of a digital government with Genesis. To learn more, including FedRAMP solutions, visit genesis.com slash government. That's G-E-N-E-S-Y-S dot com slash government. All right, guys, welcome back to our conversation with Government of Ireland CIO, Barry Lowry. And to kick off this next segment, I wanted to start by talking about some of the biggest challenges that you're facing right now, Barry. Obviously, the pandemic was a game changer. But now that things have settled a bit, what are some of those big mountains you're really looking to climb? I think the biggest single challenge is going to be finding space and resource to do all the things that we want to do um, between now and 2030. We're very much aligned with the EU digital decade targets, which are things like uh, 90% of public services online, 80% of the public actively using a, a, a state EID and, and so on. And there's a great willingness in the government to do that. In fact, there's a great willingness to not just achieve the EU targets, but exemplify them to be a top three EU country in terms of digital government. But the reality is that in, in Ireland, we're facing a lot of issues at the moment. Um, 
we've we're facing the cost of of COVID and 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 recovering from that, which things were going very well. But now we've had the the Ukraine war, and that's obviously having a number of impacts. One is is dealing with the thousands of of refugees who are coming into the country, but the other one is the impact on on the cost of living. And the livelihoods of our people, because petrol and oil and gas have just gone up so much. So when things like that happen, it often puts governments into react mode, um, rather than being proactive and 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 delivering long term plans. So I guess the next year or so, for certain, is going to be a, a case of trying to do both, um, and and trying to move forward and prioritize. Um, while doing all of those things that, that that we need to do in terms of managing the, the current issues with the economy and, and and the impacts that people are feeling. what So when you take a look at some of the outcomes you're looking to get out of these challenges, what are some of the biggest inhibitors? I know there's obviously around the world um, for government, there's a talent management issue, right? Being able to bring in the top talent and competition with some of the private sector folks and just some of it is just reskilling the current people that you have. I don't know if that's one or there are other inhibitors that, you, that you're seeing right now that you're having to overcome to get outcomes out of some of these challenges. So uh, again, I was really interested in, in uh, your podcast where you were having a, a conversation with uh, Natalie Petahoff, if I hope I've pronounced her name properly, about her book, because actually, you know, she talks about some of the um, issues that government face. And I guess, you know, it's interesting, first of all, to explore those, because, you know, the big difference between government and other forms of digital services that, you know, to use Natalie's term, really orchestrate a user experience well, is that government represent all the population. So, you know, I love Amazon, but if you don't have um, a technology capability on a credit card, you know, Amazon are thanks, but no thanks. You know, you're 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 not getting a you're not getting an account. Whereas, of course, government, everybody's our customer, and so we need to move at the speed of the slowest. We need to always look after those who can't engage online to the same extent, or possibly at all, and and all of those things. And the another big issue is that um, we we have legacy systems to deal with, and that can be challenging when there's a lot of um, policy development happening in a number of areas. For example, uh, our revenue department. I know the CIO well. I know that he would love to rewrite their systems, but in actual fact, they've had to deal with the range of issues, the move to a new means of taxation. Then there was the uh, tax implications of the supports for COVID and a number of instruments that the government introduced there. Then it was changes to the property tax. Then it was uh, changes coming now to corporation tax and so on. So they're always dealing with a number of priorities, policy priorities, which doesn't always give them the space to step back and think of things like the user experience and you know how well their services uh, um, are, are, are how usable they are via a phone and so on. So they're all big issues for us. You know, I talked about the investment, but talent is a big issue for us as well. Um, and I think you know we 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 need we're obliged in government to think differently about talent and. Uh, you know, you and I were talking uh, earlier about our, our, our mutual love of soccer. And I think actually soccer provides a great metaphor for the um, the IT industry because, you know, the world famous teams, the Barcelonas and the Manchester Uniteds and so on, they simply are willing and happy to pay more to get the best players, the best resources, whereas other clubs have to think differently. And it's about, you know, growing academies, growing their own talent, about maybe finding people who've had a career in the private sector and earned a lot of money and want to give something back and would be willing to do that. Or maybe find people where it's less about, you know, the the car and the immediate benefits and more about possibly the long term sustainability and um, more flexibility around working hours or all of those things. So. 
we're having to be very clever about how we attract and retain uh, staff, but also realistic as well mm-hmm. about what things we should be doing in government and what things maybe we need help and partnerships to help us do. And that's fine. You know, we're good with that. And in my organization, we do do development. We do have some very talented technical people, but we tend to focus more of our resources and our skills in developing outcomes with the customers, um, whether that's the departments or whether that's the public themselves and being more the orchestrators of change rather than the people that are right designing and writing the systems if that makes sense i gotta say this is the first time somebody's used soccer as a metaphor for what they're trying to get across and i didn't hate it um and we could go into a rabbit hole and i'm pulling myself back yeah. uh, you you did say something really interesting there towards the beginning of what you said though around essentially kind of having to meet the the customers or the citizens where they are it's been in my opinion a changing of mindset from a lot of leaders where before I think they were all too happy just to throw something out there because really your constituents didn't have a choice. They had to go there. They had to use it. So what was the impetus for them to make it better, make it a more delightful experience? And I think as technology has evolved as well to to facilitate this, leadership has also evolved and they've taken a different mindset and approach into how they're delivering these services to citizens. And I think that's been an absolute game changer, in my opinion. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think you're right. And one of the one of the things that, you know, I would have said and our ministers said about where we were going with digital was it was our aim to make digital a benefit to everyone. And by that, we meant what, uh, if we can create a better digital experience, then more people like yourself will use the digital service because it suits you time-wise to do it in the evening, you know, when the kids are in bed or whatever that happens to be, rather than go into the office and do it physically. So if we can drive 90% of our people to using the digital government service rather than the face-to-face service, what we're actually doing is freeing up resource to give more time and space to the people who really need it. And so, you know, everybody wins from from digital. That's the punchline. So we're incentivized to actually create the best possible digital experience that it's easy to use and people don't give up and say, oh, I can't be bothered. I'll just go into the the office tomorrow and I'll, I'll do it myself, you know, face to face. So we're incentivized to change their journey. Uh, and change the channel that they prioritize. And of course, most people are up for that because they're used to doing that for their banking and their travel and their retail. And So I mentioned in the last question around how leaders have evolved and taken a look at things a little bit differently. But I'm curious, when you take a look at your role as CIO, you've been in, in this seat for over six years now. How have you seen your role as, as well as the role of a, of a government CIO evolve, in your opinion? Well, I, I was very lucky. I'm sure you know yourself that in in the um, between about 2010 and about 2016, 17, there was a real debate going on about uh, what a CIO was, uh, and the likes of Gartner and Forrester and so on were writing these reports about what was a CIO. And what I tended to to, to see was that there were two types of people called themselves CIO. There were those who basically managed the the, the tin, uh, if you can use a crude term, of, of the organization, you know, and and, and upgraded licenses and, and, and all of those things, bought systems. But there were then those who saw themselves as much more aligned with the business. And one of the things that, that, that really attracted me about the job in Ireland was when I read the spec, it was very clear to me that the Irish government had got it and they were looking for a CIO who could really be the bridge between the business and and, and the wants of the, the, the government and then the delivery side, the, the technologists themselves. And that's the role that I always saw myself as being most comfortable in. So I always felt I was somebody who was 
naturally from that position, if you like. You know, my own background was humanities. Um, my master's degree was about transformation and, and, and occupational psychology and so on. So it was all of those things were, were, were the things that, you know, that um, I felt was a CIO should be doing. And I also felt that 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 was where my skill set was anyway. And I was a natural fit for that type of CIO. So um, I remember when a friend contacted me to tell me that that the job was was had been advertised, he said to me, you know, I know that role very well and you're a perfect fit for it and it's a perfect fit for you. So I've been here six years. He must have been right. <laughs> and it, exactly how you described it, I think, is really the sweet spot of what the the modern CIO is. It's not just somebody focused on technology. It's not just somebody focused on the business. It has to be almost an interpreter between the two. I like the term architect, Brian. And I know people use enterprise architect and they mean a certain thing by that. But when I talk about the CIO as an architect, I'm literally thinking of an architect that might design a house for us or, or design an extension for us. Because what they do, in effect, is they work us through the outcomes that we want from their work. And they then come back to us with some form of drawing and get us to prove the outcome or agree that the outcome that's in their mind is the same as the outcome in our mind. And then they'll translate that into, uh, I guess, tech speak, for want of a better term, that the the civil engineer can use or the quantity surveyor can use or the builder uh, him or herself can use. And so I don't see an awful lot of difference, actually, between designing uh, a great IT system and designing a great house or, or a property. The, and, and the role, to my mind, of the CIO is to perform that architect uh, role, to be the person who really understands where the business is going, what the business needs to achieve, and then can translate that into a portfolio of, of projects and programs that will deliver uh, on those outcomes. So I'd imagine as you're looking to to architect and build whatever that program is, whatever that solution is, and keeping in mind the technology aspect and business aspect, that data becomes a large piece of that, right? Because you're trying to become more data-driven. You're trying to make sure that whatever outcome you're driving towards is something that's been well thought out and and proven. Um, And I know that's been a major focus for government organizations all over the world. I'm curious to know what what plans have you put into place to ensure that data can really be at the heart of everything that your government is rolling out? So when we did our strategy in at, at the end of 2015, one of the key things, in fact, the key thing, it was the central building block of the strategy was, was data. And what we said was that the aspiration of government was that we would align with the EU tell us once only principle. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, we all know the frustration of every time you liaise with government or the health service or whatever, you're asked the same questions every time and you think, do you not have a corporate memory here? So that's tell us once is you literally tell us once and, and we use many times with your permission. Um, and the other part of it was that we would use data for a greater benefit beyond the service itself. So what I mean by that is, you know, if if you provide data to tax a car, for example, then we know how many people are are driving cars in Ireland and we know the type of cars they are and therefore we know the impact that that might have on climate. And, you know, we know if we're driving down diesel cars and and growing EVs and and all Mm -hmm. of that sort of thing. So when... um, I first discussed the strategy with with the ministers that I was working for. Um, One of the things that they were very keen on was that Ireland would not just be a a digital exemplar, but would be an exemplar in the stewardship of data. So then we got into discussion about what does that look like? And of course, GDPR provides you with really good guidelines as to what that looks like. It's all about specificity of uh, using data, purpose of using data, transparency and how you use data and so on. And so what we did was we passed 
a piece of legislation, which I guess, you know, has been, it's been said by OECD and so on, the Ireland approach was at the very forefront forefront of, of global thinking, and that we passed this Data Sharing and Governance Act. And what that Data Sharing and Governance Act said was that, first of all, every piece of government data sharing would be redone under this act. And the act of redoing that data sharing, creating new data sharing agreements, would require public consultation so the public could um, contribute to how that data was being shared and also then would be published so as any individual could go online and see the data sharing that was taking place. And also then we would build a complementary data portal that you could actually see the data the government was holding on you and using it. And ultimately, of course, correct that, challenge its use or whatever those things are. So, of course, the big driver in this, which is the big driver in any organization that wants to use data, is earning trust. And even in the journey, it's clear that the government in Ireland is earning the trust of its people in terms of it being a steward of their data or a custodian of their data. And in a recent OECD survey, for example, uh, Ireland and, and Denmark were seen to be two of the global leaders in terms of trust of the public in how they dealt with with the public and, and specifically actually how they reused their data. So we had talked earlier about how human-centered design really went into how you're building out experiences for your citizens. I'm curious to know when you when you were just talking about the program that you were and you're taking a look at kind of the needs and wants of citizens, how are you getting some of that information? How are you understanding and assimilating what your citizens want out of some of these programs that you're building? Well, we're actually starting literally uh, at the end of this month at a very simple level. And what we're doing is we're asking the citizens what government services they're using most digitally and how they rate the experience of those government services. So if you can imagine a, a, you know, a, a typical Gartner magic quadrant, and I know other organizations use magic quadrants as well, <laughs> but if you think along the uh, x-axis, you've got the uh, most uh, popular or in-demand services from the least to the most popular. And on the y-axis, you've got uh, their quality, for want of a better word, from the poorest quality experience to the highest quality experience. Well, then it's pretty clear from that that everything that is heavily used but poor quality, that quadrant becomes your priority plan. And so what the government's invitation to its people is, you tell us the priorities. You know, you go through this process and we'll know what your priorities are. And then what we're going to do is we're going to work through those priorities and we're going to consult you. We're going to try and find out your user journey, exactly what you find so frustrating, and we're going to do our best to fix it. So that is really, uh, uh, I guess, taking the user experience and the user demands, if you like, or requirements right into the center of how government is going to do digital, which of course is absolutely the right thing to do because ultimately they're paying for it. Well, yeah. I mean, my first thought is, are you going to make that data available? Because I'd love to see it. And if not, I would love for you to slide me uh, some of that information. We're, we're going to make it available because the promise is we're going to carry out the survey over the summer and we're going to publish it by the end of September. So we're going to go back to the... Um, to, to the public and we're going to say to them, you know, well, these are your priorities and, and this is what we're going to work on. And uh, now this is really challenging for us because if you think of um, any government model um, and, uh, you know, the UK was a famous one where it set up the GDS and, and, and you know, it, it tried to influence uh, through Mike Bracken and Liam Maxwell a, a, a different level, I guess, of, of digital government. And in some respects, the pushback can be that people don't like you telling them that their service isn't as good as it might be. And so I guess the, the, the clever thing and the approach that we're adopting is not only it's the right thing to do, but actually they're not being told by the government CIO or his office 
they're being told by the people themselves that we don't think this is as good as it could be. And so there's almost an obligation to respond. And we're hoping that they approach it in a very positive manner, that they look at it that, okay, um, people don't like this service or that service. Let's look at what their experience is and how we might improve it. It seems so easy and pragmatic, right? Ask the citizens what they want, but it's something that governments don't tend to do. And it actually, it kind of leads me into my, one of my questions that I really want to ask you is, how much do you look at other countries for outside influence, especially as you're building these digital strategies? And is, is this something that you're seeing other countries do? I mean, just as simple as literally asking the people what they want. Is this something that you're seeing? Uh, I'm, I'm seeing bits of it, um, possibly not being carried forward with the same level of, of ambition <laughs> as we're doing in Ireland. But then, you know, when, when you look at Ireland, um, you, you say, how do we use our advantages, you know, and, and, and our disadvantages scale, you know, we'll never have the budget that the UK does, we'll never have the resources that it has. Sure. But what we do have is we've got agility. And of course, we've the added advantages that, you know, Ireland is the headquarters of some of the biggest, you know, software companies in the world. They, they base mm -hmm. the European headquarters here. So, you know, if we can't be an exemplar, then questions need to be asked about what we're doing as a nation, because it's clear we've got so much talent. So um, we're, we're probably being extremely ambitious, but, you know, we make no apology for that. We think it's the right thing to do. Now, in terms of, you know, who we consult, um, we would be very close to uh, the Scandinavian nations and Estonia, though I often refer yep. to them as one of the Scandinavians. So, you know, Denmark, uh, Finland, uh, Estonia in, in particular, uh, those three countries, but also the Netherlands, who also would be very highly regarded as a digital country. And indeed, Austria, who, who who are doing some really exciting things as well, especially around the smartphone. So there would always be a focus there. Um, and of course, you know, being Ireland, we we work very closely with the UK. We watch what they're doing. You know, we ask them a lot about the, the, the things that have gone well and also the things that don't go so well. And we would be very close to um, uh, New Zealand and Singapore, and um, and and Canada indeed, uh, we're having a meeting with them in a couple of weeks, and we've shared a lot of ideas with the Canadians. Um, in Ireland, we like to think of ourselves, you see, as being everybody's best friend. You know, because <laughs> in some respects we're part of Europe, but in other respects we're part of that, I guess, allegiance of predominantly English-speaking countries. You know, so you know the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Um, the states to some degree, you know, but obviously it, it, it's 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 huge. It's bigger than Europe. Um, but uh, and 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 interestingly enough, uh, we've done an awful lot of work with Singapore, um, mm -hmm. simply because we seem to seek each other out as being like-minded in terms well, they're, of. They're very cutting edge in what they yeah. do. Singapore, especially, very cutting edge. Yeah, and, and we admire them greatly. So you know, um, when. Uh, we were doing the um, contact tracing app, for example. Um, we reached out to Singapore because it was hitting, you know, it was hitting the the, the media um, at that time that Singapore were doing some really exciting things. Uh, we wanted to find out about them, and they're very good. You know, you reach out to them, and, and they will come back, and they're they're very happy yeah. to talk openly about what's good and, and what's not so good about what they're doing. And, and, and we learned a lot from that. And actually, we took a, a lot of their experience and, and turn, turned that into lessons learned that we could use in our own app. You mentioned Canada. I recently had um, Catherine Luello, who's the CIO for the government of Canada on and, and your peer. And one of the things that she touched on, actually, because I, I was all too excited to ask her this question, um, because I'm very competitive, how how much did she look at other countries, not just from a collaboration standpoint, which she just touched on, and and I love seeing that level of collaboration and inspiration. I think that's important. But also, how much do you look at some of these other nations from a competitive standpoint, especially when you look at the, the UN e-government index, things of that nature? Is that something that's, I don't want to say top of mind, but maybe in the back of your mind when you're when you're looking at some of these ambitious goals that you talked about setting, that you want to be able to raise the stature 
of Ireland on a ranking like that against some of your some of your peers? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to tell you we don't take these things seriously, but that wouldn't be true. Um, <laughs> and, and our our major source, I guess, of of information is the EU Digital Economy and Society uh, mm-hmm. Index, and Ireland does really well in that. You know, we're fifth place, um, so we're behind three of the Scandinavian countries and Netherlands. Um, but actually, when you look at digital government, we don't do just so well, and the reason why we don't do just so well. Is because they take health sector, you know, education, local government, justice, and so on into account. And there's a lot of work that we need to do on our health service. Um, central government, we're very strong. Local government, we're becoming strong. Um, but we need to do a lot of work in the health service. And we, and we know that, you know, and we're up for that. But what that does is that naturally leads you into finding those countries who score, mm-hmm. you know, as impressively as you do and outscore you in certain areas. So certainly, yes, the Desi Index would have would have made us look closely at initially Denmark because they were number one and we have very good relations with, with Denmark. And so that became, uh, they became a, a place where we reached out to them. You know, they came over to see us. They've spent time with us before. They're very interested in what we're doing in the data front, for example, where they would say that our thinking's ahead of theirs. So we've learned a lot with them. Um, we also do the, the UN uh, index and we do the OECD as well. We just started that. And actually, through the OECD, we've got involved in a lot of uh, GovStack stuff with the likes of Canada and Mexico and so on. So, of course, that's the great thing about um, technology, you know, that it it does, to use that cliche, it turns us into a global village. And you start to make friends with CIOs in other countries and, and learn a lot from them. So, yeah, we, we, we take every opportunity to be impressed and, and, and to try and plagiarize those ideas if possible. I, I think something I want to call out there and what you said, I think it's important. It's a really good um, way to lead is to understand your blind spots. And you talked a lot about taking a look at countries that are your peers, but that you score less in, in certain areas, understanding where you're scoring less, why you're scoring less, understanding those blind spots, I think is an important aspect of getting stronger in, in overall as a country, overall in your strategy. Um, so I, I want to call that out. I think that's a, a great way to drive drive progress forward, especially in the pockets where you where you already know that you're kind of falling behind, like you mentioned in in the healthcare healthcare space. Yeah. Um, I want to I, I want to give you a chance to leave some final thoughts before I do that. I have one last question. When you look at the government technology industry as a whole, what is the biggest challenge that you see the industry facing today, or what are a couple of the big challenges that you see facing the industry today that you think can be addressed over the next few years? I think um, most governments now, we've got to accept the fact that our legacy systems aren't going to go away in the near future. And uh, so if you, if you think of Ireland, for example, how we collect tax and how we pay benefits Mm -hmm. are largely driven by legacy systems. And, you know, uh, the CIOs from from those particular departments, you know, I'm very good friends with them. And and they would tell you that, you know, every time they look at rewriting their systems or starting to look at replatforming them, another government initiative will come along and they've got to focus on that, which of course they do very well, but ultimately that adds to their their, their, their technology debt, if you like. And, you know, you read across to any countries, and I know this, I have a lot of familiarity with the UK, for example, you know, the systems of record will remain legacy and that term, you know, the, the meaning that we, we apply to that term legacy for the foreseeable future. And so what that requires us to do um, is follow this twin track approach where we start to st- uh, begin with the user journey and carry out digitization, working back from the user journey and working out how to um, integrate that new data or those services with our systems of record. 
And of course, we've got a, a tremendous trailblazer for that because many of the banks that you would speak to have done exactly that. You know, competition forced them to build apps and forced them to develop really good web portals and service portals and so on. And then they were left with having to use robotics or, or whatever technology um, could be applied to basically uh, integrate these front ends in with their system of record. And I think most countries will end up going that way as a halfway house because the, the only alternative, brand, and, and we're having this conversation, for example, with um, the whole idea of an electronic health record, even a small country like Ireland, if you build out a national electronic health record, it's going to take 10 years, you know, easily. Um, whereas some of the hospital groups in Ireland have something that's broadly that anyway. So if we stop looking at national systems and look at interoperability and look at the user journey, I think we'll find better ways of tackling the user needs more quickly and more effectively. So my prediction, I guess, is that's where we'll be going. But I think that's where a lot of countries will be going. You know, in, in Austria, for example, they're starting to really push this idea of M government. In other words, your government service on your mobile. Now, that's not for everybody. And I, I wouldn't like to try and uh, carry out a tax return, for example, in my mobile. But you can see what they're getting at. And obviously, one of the things that we've learned is if you take a, an electronic health record or a health record and I can carry around either the basic data on my phone or something like a QR code that provides access to the data, then that's a, a significant step up from the service that we have at the moment. So I, I think that's going to be the necessary direction of travel. I think one of the things that's fascinating too about where you are geographically is, especially in the EU, and it's not unique to the EU, but especially in that in that region, it's you guys cross countries the same way we in the United States cross state lines. And yeah. I think when you talk about data crossing borders, it's very different when you're talking about a state versus a country. So I also think, I mean, you, you talked about a prediction. I think one of the things that I see over the next decade is taking a look at what that what that data sharing looks like and how countries can really be working together. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, to make sure that really travels with you as a citizen, because it's very different when you're a citizen of the EU versus being a citizen of the United States, I would think, right? Yeah, although um, one of the, I guess one of the things sometimes that in Europe we don't always realize is that even if you go to the States, you do not necessarily have exactly the same legislation applicable from one state to the next. Oh, absolutely. So in, some, in some respects, the challenge isn't isn't dissimilar in the states than than it is in Europe because you know you you end up having to say, well, what is the common denominator here? Let's find out the, from from baseline or from foundation what are the things that we can agree on, what are the things that we can build. And then you work your way up. And if you take something like a digital identity, for example, some parts of Europe are still wedded to this idea of, you know, the, the, the uh, chip and pin and your little device and you go online and you put a card in your device and you put in codes and all of those things. They're still wedded to that because their banking models are still wedded to that and so on. And then you get this other extreme where you get countries like Austria and Ireland and others who are basically saying, guys, it's all about the phone and your security comes from the your fingerprint on the on the phone or, or whatever that happens to be. Now we could we could use all our energy debating is it one solution or the other, or we could follow a user journey and say, well, what works here? What can we make work? And if you take um, the digital COVID certificate, for example, that we talked about before, um, what we learned in Europe was a very simple way of giving people choice as to how they use the credential in other countries and did that very successfully. And so, you know, whether we're talking about Europe or, or whether we're talking about global or even within, you know, obviously huge 
continents or, or places like, like the United States, then finding this way of cooperating in every way that means and also being interoperability, having great interoperability will be the challenge, I think, for us all as, as public service CIOs, because at the end of the day, that's what people want. You know, you, you go to the States and everything you need is on your phone. You know, people would love that, you know, the passport on the phone that can be used anywhere in the world rather than just in Europe. You know, so you, you can see where people will push governments eventually into a space where I think we'll see huge step changes in terms of how governments cooperate going forward in the um, in the use of public services and public credentials. Hey, Barry, I'm grateful for the time and, and even more grateful for you sharing your points of view on some of the things that I think are impacting all of us around the world as, as we're looking at what the future of digital government looks like. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience as we uh, wrap up today? Um, I don't know whether it's a final thought or a final comment, but um, I guess, you know, one of the, we often talk about the problems working in, in public service, you know, and our legacy systems and issues with interoperability and, and all of those things. Um, but actually, you know, the, the, the privilege of working as a CIO in, in public service, I think would be the last thought that I would want to leave. You know, that it is a fantastic privilege to know that you've got the opportunity to build things that actually affect people and, and affect all people. You know, um, and, and so that's what motivates me. And I'm sure any listeners who are working in public service would agree 100 percent. That's probably what motivates them as well. Barry, I, I got to say, I've I've enjoyed getting to know you, not just on on the conversation that we've had today, but just just offline. Your your love of sport has kind of brought us together a little bit. But um, I'm looking forward to uh, connecting with you more and more and, and really appreciate the leadership you're bringing to uh, to your country and, and government there. I think you guys are, there's a reason why you guys are driving this forward in the way that you are and um, kudos to you for what you're doing. So thank you again for being on the show. I've enjoyed this conversation fantastically. Thanks, Brian. It's really to talk to you. And um, put in a cheer for Tottenham Hotspur to do well in the Champions League this year. <laughs> you know I won't. <laughs> All right, this has, been, this has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading out to gmarku.com wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on Twitter at Chittistray B or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.